Chapter 12 They managed to elude the Oban for half an hour before they were cornered. The squad would have been better off separating, drawing the pursuing Oban in several directions, and opening up the possibility of one or more of its numbers slipping away at the sacrifice of the others. But they stayed together, compensating for the lack of integration by staying in each other's sight. Jared led the way at first, Sagan taking up the rear to drag along Wigner. Somewhere along the way, Jared and Sagan traded roles, Sagan taking them largely north, away from the Oban pursuing them. A distant whine became louder. Jared looked up through the tree canopy and saw an Oban aircraft pacing the squad and then heading north. Ahead, Sagan skipped to the right and headed east. She had heard the aircraft as well. A few minutes later, a second aircraft appeared and paced the squad again, dropping down to about ten meters above the canopy. There was an immense rattle and branches fell and exploded around them. The Oban had opened fire. Sagan skidded to a stop as huge caliber slugs blew up dirt directly in front of her. That was that for going east. The squad turned north. The aircraft turned and paced them, offering bullets when they lagged or when they deviated too far to the east or west. The aircraft wasn't giving chase. It was hurting them efficiently toward an unknown destination. That destination appeared ten minutes later when the squad emerged into another, smaller meadow, this one with the Oban who had been in the first aircraft waiting for them. Behind them, the second aircraft was preparing to land. Behind that, the initial group of Oban, who had never been far behind, was now becoming visible through the trees. Wigner, still not entirely recovered from the mental trauma of being unplugged, pushed away from Jared and raised his MP, apparently determined not to go out without a fight. He sighted in at the group of Oban waiting for them in the meadow and yanked at the trigger. Nothing happened. To keep the MP from being used against CDF soldiers by their enemies, the MP required a brain pal verification to fire. It got none. Wigner snarled in frustration and then everything above his eyebrows disappeared, as a single shot took off the top of his head. He collapsed. In the distance, Jared could see an Oban soldier lowering a weapon. Jared, Sagan, Harvey, and Seaborg came together, drew their combat knives and put their backs to each other, each facing a different direction. Drawing their knives was a futile gesture of defiance. None of them pretended to imagine that the Oban needed to get within an arm's reach to kill them all. Each took some small comfort in knowing they'd die within arm's reach of each other. It wasn't integration, but it was the best they could hope for. By this time, the second aircraft had landed. From inside the craft, six Oban emerged, three carrying weapons, two with other equipment, and one empty-handed. The empty-handed one swayed over to the humans in the Oban's peculiarly graceful gait, and stopped a prudent distance away, its back covered by the three weapon-wielding Oban. Its blinking multiple eyes appeared to fix on Sagan, who was closest to it. Surrender, it said, in sibilant but clear English. Sagan blinked. Excuse me, she said. As far as she knew, the Oban never took prisoners. 
Surrender, it said again. You will die if you do not. You will let us live if we surrender, Sagan said. Yes, the oven said. Jared glanced over to Sagan, who was to his right. He could see her chewing over the offer. The offer looked good to Jared. The oven might kill them if they surrendered, but they would definitely kill them if they didn't. He didn't offer the opinion to Sagan. He knew she didn't trust him or want to hear his opinion about anything. Drop your weapons, Sagan said, finally. Jared dropped his knife and unslung his MP. The others did likewise. The Oban also had them remove their packs and belts, leaving only their unitards. A couple of the Oban who had been in the original group pursuing them came over and picked up the weapons and equipment and hauled them back to the airship. When one walked in front of Harvey, Jared could feel him tense up. Jared suspected Harvey was trying very hard not to kick it. Their weapons and equipment removed, Jared and the others were made to stand apart from each other while the two Oban bearing equipment waved said equipment over each of them, searching, Jared suspected, for hidden weapons. The two Oban scanned the other three and then came to Jared, only to cut their examination short. One of them offered up a fluty comment to the head Oban in its native language. The head Oban came over to Jared, two armed Oban trailing it. You'll come with us, it said. Jared glanced over at Sagan, looking for clues on how she wanted him to play this and getting nothing. Where am I going? Jared asked. The head Oban turned and trilled something. One of the Oban behind him raised his weapon and shot Steve Seaborg in the leg. Seaborg went down, screaming. The head Oban swiveled its attention back to Jared. You come with us, it said again. Jesus fuck, Dirac, Seaborg said. Go with the fucking Oban. Jared stepped out of line and allowed himself to be escorted to the aircraft. Sagan watched Jared step out of line and briefly considered lunging and snapping his neck, depriving the Oban and Bhutan of their prize and assuring that Dirac wouldn't have the opportunity to do anything stupid. The moment passed, and besides, it would have been a long shot anyway, and then they would all almost certainly be dead. As it was now, they were still alive. The head Oban turned its attention to Sagan, whom it recognized as the squad's leader. You will stay, it said, and gambled off before Sagan could say anything. She stepped forward to address the retreating Oban, but as she did, three Oban came forward, brandishing weapons. Sagan put her hands up and backed away. But the Oban continued forward, motioning to Sagan that she and the rest of the squad needed to move. She turned to Seaborg, who was still on the ground. How's your leg? she asked. The unitard caught most of it, he said referring to the uniform's ability to stiffen and absorb some of the impact of a projectile. It's not too bad. I'll live. Can you walk? Sagan asked. As long as I'm not required to like it, Seaborg said. Come on, then, Sagan said, and held out her hand to help Seaborg up. Harvey, get Wigner. 
Daniel Harvey walked over to the dead soldier and picked him up in a fireman's carry. They were being herded into a depression slightly off-center from the middle of the meadow. The small spray of trees within it suggested the bedrock below had eroded away. As they arrived at the depression, Sagan heard the whine of an airship departing, and a second whine of one arriving. The arriving craft, larger than the other two had been, landed near the depression, and from its guts rolled a series of identical machines. What the hell are those? Harvey asked, setting down Wigner's body. Sagan didn't answer. She watched as the machines positioned themselves around the perimeter of the bowl, eight in all. The Oban who had come with the machines scrambled to the top of the machines and retracted the metal coverings, revealing large, multi-barrel flechette guns. When all the covers had been retracted, one of the Oban activated the flechette guns. They powered up ominously and began to track objects. It's a fence, Sagan said. They've locked us in here. Sagan took an experimental step toward one of the guns. It swung toward her and tracked her movement. She took another step forward, and it emitted a painful high-pitched squeal, which Sagan assumed was designed to serve as a proximity warning. Sagan imagined that another step toward the gun would result in her foot being shot off at the very least, but she did not bother to test the proposition. She backed away from the gun. It turned off its siren, but did not stop tracking her until she had retreated several steps. They had those here just waiting for us, Harvey said. Very nice. What do you think are the odds? Sagan stared back up at the guns. The odds are bad, Sagan said. What do you mean? Harvey said. These are from the science station, Sagan said, motioning to the guns. They have to be. There's no other sort of installation anywhere close to here. These aren't the sort of things a science station would just have lying around. They've used them here before to hold people in. Yeah, okay, Seaborg said. But who and why? We've had six Special Forces ships disappear, Sagan said, omitting the one the Oban attacked and destroyed. Those crews went somewhere. Maybe they were brought here. That still doesn't answer why, Seaborg said. Sagan shrugged. She hadn't figured out that part yet. The air was filled with the sound of the airships lifting off. The noise of their engines attenuated away, leaving nothing but the ambient sounds of nature behind. Great, Harvey said. He chucked a stone at one of the guns. It tracked the rock, but didn't fire on it. We're out here with no food, water, or shelter. What do you think the odds are that the Oban are never coming back for us? Sagan thought... Those odds were very good indeed. So you're me, Charles Bhutan said to Jared. Funny, I thought I'd be taller. Jared said nothing. On arrival at the sign station, he had been confined to a creche, tightly secured, and wheeled through the high, bare hallways until he arrived at what he assumed was a laboratory filled with unfamiliar machines. Jared was left there for what seemed like hours before Bhutan entered and strolled right up to the creche, examining Jared physically as if he were a large and really interesting bug. 
Jared hoped Bhutan would come up far enough to receive a headbutt. He did not. That was a joke, Bhutan said to Jared. I know, Jared said. It just wasn't funny. Well, Bhutan said, I'm out of practice. You may have noticed the Oban are not the sort to crack wise. I noticed, Jared said. During the entire trip to the science station, the Oban were utterly silent. The only words the head Oban had said to Jared were, get out when they arrived, and get in when they opened the portable crash. Uh, you can blame the Khonsu for that, Bhutan said. When they made the Oban, I guess they forgot to drop in a humor module, among the many other things they apparently forgot. Despite himself, or because of whose memories and personality he held in his head, Jared's attention focused. Then it's true, he said. The Khonsu uplifted the Oban. If you want to call it that, Bhutan said. Although the word uplift by its nature implies good intentions on the part of the uplifter, which is not in evidence here. From what I can get from the Oban, the Khonsu one day wondered what would happen if you made some species smart. So they came to Obener, found an omnivore in a minor ecological niche, and gave it intelligence. You know, just to see what would happen next. What happened next, Jared said. A long and cascading series of unintended consequences, my friend. Bhutan said. That end, for now, with you and me here in this lab, it's a direct line from there to here. I don't understand, Jared said. Of course you don't, Bhutan said. You don't have all the data. I didn't have all the data before I came here, so even if you know everything I know, you wouldn't know that. How much of what I know do you know? Jared said nothing. Bhutan smiled. Enough, anyway, he said. I can tell you have some of my same interests. I saw how you perked up when I talked about the Kansu. But maybe we should start with the simple things, like, what is your name? I find it disconcerting to talk to my sort of clone without having something to call you. Jared Dirac, Jared said. Ah, Bhutan said. Yes, the Special Forces Naming Protocol. Random first name, notable scientist last name. I did some work with the Special Forces at one time. Indirectly, since you people don't like non-Special Forces getting in your way. What is that name you call us? Realborn, Jared said. Right, Bhutan said. You like keeping yourself apart from the Realborn. Anyway, the naming protocol of the Special Forces always amused me. The pool of last names is actually pretty limited. A couple of hundred or so, and mostly classical European scientists. Not to mention the first names. Jared, Brad, Cynthia, John, Jane. The names came out as a good-natured sneer. Hardly a non-Western name among them, and for no good reason, since Special Forces aren't recruited from Earth like the rest of the CDF. You could have been called Yusef Al-Baruni, and it would have been all the same to you. The set of names Special Forces uses implicitly says something about the point of view of the people who created them, and created you. Don't you think? I like my name, Charles, Jared said. Oh, touche, Bhutan said. But I got my name through family tradition, where yours was just mixed and matched. 
Not that there's anything wrong with Dirac. Named for Paul Dirac, no doubt. Ever heard of the Dirac Sea? No, Jared said. Dirac proposed that what vacuum really was was a vast sea of negative energy, Bhutan said. And that's a lovely image. Some physicists at the time thought it was an inelegant hypothesis, and maybe it was. But it was poetic, and they didn't appreciate that aspect. But that's physicists for you. Not exactly brimming over with poetry. The Oban are excellent physicists, and not one of them has any more poetry than a chicken. They definitely wouldn't appreciate the Dirac Sea. How are you feeling? Constrained, Jared said. And I need to piss. So piss, Bhutan said. I don't mind. The creche is self-cleaning, of course, and I'm sure your unitard can wick away the urine. Not without talking to my brain pal about it, Jared said. Without communicating with the owner's brain pal, the nanobots in the unitard's fabric only maintained basic defensive properties, like impact stiffening, designed to keep the owner safe through loss of consciousness or brain pal trauma. Secondary capabilities, like the ability to drain away sweat and urine, were deemed non-essential. Ah, Bhutan said. Well, here, let me fix that. Bhutan went to an object on one of the lab tables and pressed on it. Suddenly, the thick cotton batting in Jared's skull lifted. His brain pal functionality was back. Jared ignored his need to piss in a frantic attempt to try to contact Jane Sagan. Bhutan watched Jared with a small smile on his face. It won't work, he said, after a minute of watching Jared's inner exertions. The antenna here is strong enough to cause wave interference for about ten meters. It works in the lab, and that's about it. Your friends are still jammed up. You can't reach them. You can't reach anyone. You can't jam brain pals, Jared said. Brain pals transmitted through a series of multiple redundant and encrypted transmission streams, each communicating through a shifting pattern of frequencies, the pattern of which was generated through a one-time key created when one brain pal contacted another. It was virtually impossible to block even one of these streams. Blocking all would be unheard of. Bhutan walked over to the antenna and pressed it again. The cotton batting in Jared's head returned. You were saying? Bhutan said. Jared held back the urge to scream. After a minute, Bhutan turned the antenna back on. Normally you are right, Bhutan said. I supervised the latest round of communication protocols in the brain pal. I helped design them. And you're entirely correct. You can't jam the communication streams, not without using such a high-energy broadcasting source that you overwhelmed all possible transmissions, including your own. But I'm not jamming the brain pals that way, Bhutan said. Do you know what a back door is? It's an easy access entrance that a programmer or designer leaves himself into a complex programmer design so he can get into the guts of what he's working on without jumping through hoops. I had a back door into the brain pal that only opens with my verification signal. 
The back door was designed to let me monitor brain pal function on the prototypes for this last iteration, but it also allowed me to do some tweaking of the capabilities to factor out certain functions when I saw a glitch. One of the things I can do is turn off transmission capabilities. It's not in the design, so someone who is not me wouldn't know it was there. Bhutan paused for a second and regarded Jared. But you should have known about the back door, he said. Maybe you wouldn't have thought to use it as a weapon. I didn't until I got here, but if you're me, you should know this. What do you know, really? How do you know about me? Jared asked, to derail Bhutan. You knew I was supposed to be you. How did you know? Oh, that's actually an interesting story, Bhutan said, taking Jared's bait. When we decided to make the back door a weapon, I made the code for the weapon like the code for the back door, because it was the simplest thing to do. That meant that it has the ability to check the function status of the brain pals it affected. This turned out to be useful for a lot of reasons. Not the least was letting us know how many soldiers we were dealing with at one time. It also gave us snapshots of the consciousness of the individual soldiers. This also is turning out to be useful. You were very recently at Covel Station, were you not? Jared said nothing. Oh, come now, Bhutan said irritably. I know you were there. Stop acting like you were giving away state secrets. Yes, Jared said. I was at Covel. Thank you, Bhutan said. We know there are colonial soldiers at Oma and that they come into Kabul Station. We've placed detection devices there that scan for the back door, but they never go off. Whatever soldiers you have there must have different brain pal architecture. Bhutan glanced over to see Jared's reaction to this. Jared gave none. Bhutan continued. However, you tripped our alarms because you have the brain pal I designed— Later on, I got the consciousness signature sent to me, and as you might imagine, I was floored. I know the image of my own consciousness very well, since I use my own pattern for a lot of testing. I let the open know I was looking for you. We were collecting Special Forces soldiers anyway, so this was not difficult for them to do. In fact, they should have tried to collect you at Covel. They tried to kill me at Covel, Jared said. Sorry, Bhutan said. Even the Oban can get a little excited in the thick of things, but you can take comfort in knowing that after that point they were told to scan first, shoot second. Thanks, Jared said. That meant a lot to my squadmate today when they shot him in the head. Sarcasm, Bhutan said. That's more than most of your kind can manage. You got that from me. Like I said, they can get excitable. As well as telling them to look for you, I also told the Oban they could expect an attack here, because if one of you was running around with my consciousness, it was only a matter of time before you found your way here. You probably wouldn't risk a full-scale attack, but you'd probably try something sneaky, like you did. We were listening for this sort of attack, and we were listening for you. As soon as we had you on the ground, we threw the switch to disable the brain pals. Jared thought of the members of his platoon falling from the sky and felt sick. You could have let them all land, you son of a bitch, Jared said. 
When you blocked their brain pals, they were defenseless. You know that. They're not defenseless, Bhutan countered. They can't use their MPs, but they can use their combat knives and their fighting skills. Ripping away your brain pals causes most of you to go catatonic, but some of you still keep fighting. Look at you. Although you're probably better prepared than most. If you've got my memories, you know what it's like not to be connected all the time. Even so, six of you on the ground was more than enough, and we only needed you as it is. For what? Jared asked. All in good time, Charles Bhutan said. If you only need me, what are you going to do with my squad? Jared asked. I could tell you, but I think you've deflected me long enough for my original question, don't you? Bhutan smiled. I want to know what you know about me, and about being me, and about what you know of my plans here. Since I'm here, you already know we know about you, Jared said. You're not a secret anymore. And let me just say that I'm very impressed about that, Bhutan said. I thought I had covered my tracks well. And I'm kicking myself for not formatting the storage device I stored that consciousness imprint on. I was in a rush to leave, you see. Even so, it's no excuse. It was stupid of me. I disagree, Jared said. I imagine you would, Bhutan said. Since without it, you wouldn't be here. In many senses of the word, here. I am impressed they were able to make a transfer back into a brain, however. Even I hadn't figured that out before I had to go. Who managed that? Harry Wilson, Jared said. Harry, Bhutan said. <laughs> nice guy. Didn't know he was that smart. He hit it well. Of course, I did do most of the work before he got to it. Uh, to get back to your point about the Colonial Union knowing I'm here, yes, it's a problem, but it's also an interesting opportunity. There are ways to make this work. Back to it now. And let me cut short any further deflections by telling you that how you answer will help determine whether what remains of your squad lives or dies. Do you understand me? I understand you, Jared said. Perfect, Bhutan said. Now, tell me what you know about me. How much do you know about my work? Broad outlines, Jared said. The details are difficult. I didn't have enough similar experiences to let those memories take root. Having similar experiences matters, Bhutan said. Interesting. And that would explain why you didn't know about the back door. How about my political views? What I felt about the Colonial Union and the CDF? I'm guessing you don't like them, Jared said. <laughs> That'd be a pretty good guess, Bhutan said. But that sounds like you don't have any first-hand knowledge of what I thought about any of that. No, Jared said. Because you don't have any experience with that sort of thing, do you? Bhutan said. You're special forces, after all. They don't put questioning authority into your lesson plan. What about my personal experiences? I remember most of it, Jared said. I had enough experience for that. So you know about Zoe, Bhutan mused. Jared felt a flush of emotion at the child's name. I know about her, he said, voice slightly husky. Bhutan picked up on it. You feel it, too, 
he said, coming up close to Jared. Don't you? What I felt when they told me she was dead. I feel it, Jared said. You poor man, Bhutan whispered. To be made to feel that for a child you didn't know. I knew her, Jared said. I knew her through you. I see that, Bhutan said, and stepped away to a lab desk. I'm sold, Jared, he said, regaining his composure and conversation. You are sufficiently like me to officially be interesting. Does that mean you'll let my squad live? Jared asked. For now, Bhutan said. You've been cooperative, and they're fenced in by guns that will shred them into hamburger if they get within three meters of them, so there's no reason to kill them. And what about me? Jared said. You, my friend, are going to get a complete and thorough brain scan, Bhutan said, eyes to the desk where he worked a keyboard. In fact, I'm going to take a recording of your consciousness. I want to get a very close look at it indeed. I want to see how much like me you really are. It seems like you're missing a lot of detail, and you've got some special forces brainwashing to get over, but on the important things, I'd guess we have a lot in common. We're different in one way I can think of, Jared said. Really, Bhutan said. Do tell. I wouldn't betray every human alive because my daughter died, Jared said. Bhutan looked at Jared thoughtfully for a minute. You really think I'm doing this because Zoe was killed on Kevel? Bhutan finally said. I do, Jared said. And I don't think this is the way to honor her memory. You don't, do you? Bhutan said. And then turned back to the keyboard to jab at a button. Jared's crash thrummed, and he felt something like a pinch in his brain. I'm recording your consciousness now, Bhutan said. Just relax. He left the room, closing the door behind him. Jared, feeling the pinching increase in his head, didn't relax one bit. He closed his eyes. Several minutes later, Jared heard the door open and close. He opened his eyes. Bhutan had come back and was standing by the door. How's that consciousness recording working for you? He asked Jared. It hurts like hell, Jared said. Mm, there is that unfortunate side effect, Bhutan said. I'm not sure why it happens. I'll have to look into that. I'd appreciate that, Jared said, through gritted teeth. Bhutan smiled. <laughs> More sarcasm, he said. But I've brought you something that I think will ease your pain. Whatever it is, give me two of them, Jared said. I think one will be enough, Bhutan said, and opened the door to show Zoe in the doorway.